X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's not quite so cold, not quite so... But it's still pretty cold. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, February the 17th. It's a good day to subscribe to The Local. Today, back in the day, February 17th, 1801, the United States Congress broke an electoral college tie between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. House representatives chose Thomas Jefferson to be president. Aaron Burr became vice president. It was the first transition of power between political parties in United States history. 1800 was a contentious election year. The United States was a young country. Two political parties were philosophically divided on the role of the federal government. Then President John Adams was viewed by many as aristocratic and anti-republican, maybe even anti-democratic. His party, the Federalists, was ideologically split as well, and many members, including Alexander Hamilton, didn't want to support Adams. Jefferson and Burr won narrowly in October of 1800, but a flaw in the Constitution pitted Jefferson against Burr. The Constitution said that whoever got the most votes would become president, and the runner-up would become vice president. But Jefferson and Burr, who ran together, both received 73 votes, the same number. Some spiteful Federalists tried to boost Burr's chances of getting elected president. They didn't want Jefferson anyhow. Would have been a little bit like in 2008 if Republicans had supported Biden over Obama. Federalist Alexander Hamilton liked Aaron Burr even less than he liked Thomas Jefferson. He was key to getting Jefferson elected by the House. This act deepened hostilities between Hamilton and Burr, and four years later, Burr would kill Hamilton in a duel. And over 200 years later, the story would get told in a rap. Today, back in the day, February 17th, 1936, The Phantom, the first costume superhero in fiction, first appeared in print. The Phantom was created by Lee Falk. He appeared as a syndicated Sunday comic strip. The character was inspired by adventure heroes like Zorro, Tarzan, and King Arthur. But The Phantom was the first hero to wear a skin-tight costume and a mask to obscure his identity. The Phantom had no real superpowers, just relied on his strength, cunning, and mystique, his mystery, his skin-tight outfit, his mask, to fight the forces of evil. The comic strip is still running to this day. The Phantom helped bridge the gap between the pulp magazine heroes and the superheroes who have grown to dominate media and pop culture in the 21st century. Today we have an interview with Jeanette Ward-Horton, executive director of the New Leaf Project, and Jeff Sugarman, political consultant of the Oregon Cannabis Equity Act. X-Ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Over 200,000 Oregonians were still without power yesterday. Most of the power outages in the Willamette Valley. Eastern Oregon also affected by extreme weather conditions and some ensuing outages. PGE and Pacific Power both reported thousands of remaining outages yesterday, even while some areas were restored to power. My house, for instance. Hey, thanks! A PGE spokesperson said that this ice storm had an unusually severe impact on the utility's transmission system. Those are the high-power lines that feed the substations and then power individual areas. The large amount of transmission line and needed repair is contributing to delays in restoring the power. I-84 was also forced to close and then reopen once again between Baker City and Pendleton yesterday, and in Portland, many streets remain unplowed and untreated. And PBOT, the Portland Bureau of Transportation, says they're going to stay that way until the ice melts. A Peabody official said there are a number of reasons not to plow Portland side streets. They don't have the capacity to plow every street, for instance. According to the agency, the city has over 3,000 miles of side streets, 1,800 miles of main roads. Also, they say the types of plows they have might not fit down many of the narrow streets. 
And now your daily dose of data. There were 411 new cases in Oregon yesterday. The highest case counts are still in Multnomah, Washington, and Lane counties. More details on a story we shared yesterday. Four Oregonians have tested positive after being vaccinated. The Oregon Health Authority said two of the cases were in Lane and two were in Yamhill County. These reinfections occurred more than two weeks after the second dose of vaccine was given. OHA Director Patrick Allen called this development, quote, serious, but not surprising. Both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine are about 95% effective. With 177,000 Oregonians now being vaccinated, it makes sense that cases of reinfection have occurred. Both vaccines saw reinfection cases during their trial stages. Those cases were largely asymptomatic or mild. It is unknown if any of these four infection cases involved a newer variant of the coronavirus. The OHA is attempting to get samples from these patients to test them. The reality of reinfection also demonstrates the importance of following safety measures after becoming fully vaccinated, such as mask wearing and physical distancing. More fun from our weather event. Amid cold weather and power outages, Portland's also dealing with gas and sewage issues. BES, that's the Portland Bureau of Environmental Services, warned residents yesterday that sewage may have leaked in the Lamette River. Yucky! The Bureau has 99 pumping stations that normally send sewage to the Columbia Boulevard Wastewater Treatment Plant. In 2011, infrastructure was created to eliminate almost all the previously common sewage spills in the river. That infrastructure, however, does rely on electricity. And as covered recently on the local, there have been many power outages caused by the extreme weather. And who's to say if there were needed upgrades in the grid? But anyhow, at least four of those pumping stations went offline. And as of yesterday, the Bureau said they weren't yet sure whether sewage had spilled into the river, but they warned residents to stay away just in case. There was also a big gas leak in northwest Portland. There has not yet been evidence released that this was caused by the severe weather. However, the timing of it meant it was layered on top of the existing domino chain of infrastructure crises linked to the recent snowstorm. The leak was reported early yesterday morning at Northwest 10th Avenue and Northwest Cooch Street. The area was evacuated and streets were closed off. Pacific Power said it cut electricity to roughly 2,400 customers in the downtown area so that crews could safely make repairs. And by the way, to your Midwestern friends, they complain at all about how we complain about the snow. To be clear, it's not the snow that's the challenge. It's the ice. And Midwesterners are no better at dealing with ice than is Tanya Harding without her skates on. Portland police are failing to meet community language needs. An audit released last week shows PPB officers have insufficient communication with Portlanders who don't speak English. The audit was conducted by the city's Independent Police Review, or IPR. It said that there was a lack of clear, consistent, and legally sound system for non-English communication. According to IPR, the audit was motivated by numerous complaints and comments received from members of the public, most cited confusing or clumsy interactions with police. At times, the miscommunications led to people misunderstanding their legal rights. There have also been complaints of officers' reliance on family members of a non-English-speaking person to act as an interpreter. According to the report, quote, community members said it was difficult to secure someone to translate, too complicated to get the help they needed, and the officers were intimidating and displayed a lack of cultural sensitivity. IPR found that the Portland Police has few bilingual officers. 
What's more, those officers don't all have the skills needed to accurately translate technical and legal concepts. Additionally, PPB's bilingual officers are not legally certified translators or interpreters, and they are not financially compensated for their translation services. Families are deciding whether to send their kids back to school. Earlier in the year, it was announced that families would have until February the 15th to decide whether to have their kids rejoin in-person learning. This is part of Governor Kate Brown's plan to expedite the reopening of schools across the state. The deadline has come and passed. Different school districts are taking different approaches. Some have already started sending students back to school. Several districts are laying out reopening plans and surveying families. The Woodburn School District reached out to every single family regarding their preference. The results were almost a 50-50 split for distance learning versus a hybrid model. 50-50 itself sounds kind of like a hybrid model. About half of Reynolds District families also chose hybrid. 17% want to remain in distance learning. 32% said they're not sure yet. Meanwhile, Roger Waters said we don't need no education. And on the other hand, Jeremy spoke in class today. PPS, Portland Public School District, is giving families until February 22nd to respond to its survey. Beaverton has also extended its deadline. They have until February 18th. That's just a couple days away. I think that's like tomorrow. And finally, some good news. Portland Street Response has begun operating. After a month of training, this crisis response team is now on the streets of the Lentz neighborhood. The five-person team includes a program manager, a paramedic, and firefighter, a mental health clinician, and two community health workers. Lentz was chosen for the pilot phase of this program because of the high volume of mental health calls in that neighborhood. The team will be available to respond to calls between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. Monday through Friday. In six months, a second team will be added to cover nights and weekends. In 2022, the program will expand to cover more of the city. In a statement, Joanne Hardesty said, quote, the community asked for a non-police response to calls that don't require an armed police officer on site and were delivering. And that's and that today's, today's Quick, Quick 6 Local, local Rundown. X-Ray. Next up, we'll hear from Jeanette Ward-Horton and Jeff Sugarman. They joined Carly Quadros to discuss the Oregon Cannabis Equity Act, which seeks to reinvest cannabis tax dollars into black and brown communities. Here are Jeanette and Jeff, along with Carly. Oregon continues to see growth in the recreational cannabis market, but is the success finding its way back to the communities that have been targeted by the criminalization of cannabis? The Oregon Cannabis Equity Act seeks to reinvest cannabis tax dollars into repairing the damages done to black and brown communities. We're joined now by Jeanette Ward Horton and Jeff Sugarman. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so Jeff, you're part of this bill's work group. What's your background in this policy area? Well, um, I actually have 30 years or so of experience in Oregon politics. Back in 1998, I was the campaign director for the original Oregon Medical Marijuana Act and have worked um, both inside the legislature and on political campaigns for many, many years. Um, in 2015, I worked for the uh, Oregon Cannabis Association as their lobbyist. And then the next year I went to work for Groundworks Industries where I'm the chief compliance officer and um, continue to be working in politics. Uh, Jeanette, you're the executive director of New Leaf, an organization working to build intergenerational success for people of color through the legal cannabis industry. What's your involvement with the Cannabis Equity Act? Sure. So um, in June, uh, New Leaf Project 
and Students for Sensible Drug Policy out of Willamette came together and um, with the BIPOC Caucus and Representative Julie Fahey to really talk about what was going on this summer. Um, and in reaction to um, what we felt was a moment in time where we could push change on cannabis equity, which is a topic I've been working on for almost six years now uh, in the cannabis industry. I helped uh, co-found the Minority Cannabis Business Association and then uh, found a New Leaf project here in Portland, Oregon in 2018. The Cannabis Equity Act focuses on widespread reinvestment in black and brown communities. But what does that reinvestment actually look like? That's a great question. So what the Cannabis Equity Act does is recognizing the fact that uh, we all we all saw, and, and Portlanders really, um, I'm so grateful at Portlanders coming and, and protesting around Black Lives Matter for such a long period of time because it created the momentum we needed this summer to form this work group. And um, what the act does is it recognizes that the um, you know, economic downward decline of black communities that's a result of over-policing and cannabis criminalization played a really big part in that, um, that that economic decline and that that opportunity decline um, and just um, the inequities we're seeing in black communities needs to be uh, addressed. And the legalization of cannabis gives us this economic opportunity to do that, this revenue opportunity to do that. Cannabis um, in Oregon generated a billion in sales and we have uh, a lot of growing tax revenue to reinvest in the communities most harmed by cannabis criminalization, to reinvest into education and housing and land ownership and job placement and skill building for the communities who were so harmed um, under prohibition and for whom we can repair that harm with cannabis taxes and investments into that economic and opportunity building. Um, so the bill also supports free and automatic expungement for anyone with an eligible cannabis conviction. Who's eligible? Well, so, that's a good question, Carly. Um, the expungement um, issue is a really interesting one. Um, two years ago, the legislature passed a bill called Senate Bill 420, um, and it was supposed to set up a quick and speedy path for expungement. Uh, for people who have minor cannabis crimes, such as misdemeanors for possession or, um, you know, typically the smaller amounts of cannabis that um, that people often get arrested for and in many past years have been in prison. Um, so um, the this bill actually improves on the work that was done um, on Senate Bill 420 by making expungement free and automatic using cannabis tax dollars to substitute for lawyers and um, the work that needs to be done to find those crimes and be able to eliminate them. Right now, there are 28,000 or so people in Oregon who are eligible for expungement. After passage of Senate Bill 422 years ago, less than 200 of them were able to successfully complete it. So this legislation calls for the creation of a governing body to track the investment of these funds. What's that government body going to look like? So we, um, the work group, the 80 plus people who came from community organizations and a cannabis industry and small business owners who really uh, thought through this policy, we also looked at uh, cannabis policy in other states and really wanted to build the most effective cannabis social equity that we could. So the governing body is really an outcome of that. And what the governing body does is creates transparency 
and accountability um, around the work that's being done. The governing body is uh, funded through the Cannabis Equity Fund, so the funds that I talked about before, and they're um, staff positions who ensure that the funds that we're investing to improve outcomes in black and brown communities really do that. We want to see improved education outcomes and improved, improved home ownership and land ownership for Black, Indigenous, and Latinx communities. And this governing body um, makes sure that, that happens. They are accountable that these dollars really are invested um, for improvement of Black and Brown Oregonians' futures. Mm -hmm. You mentioned other states' policies. Uh, what kind of states uh, inspired this policy? There are a number of states who have already passed uh, cannabis social equity uh, policy. So most recently, Illinois and Colorado, uh, California uh, was one of the first states. New York has legislation that uh, they just recently released. So it's uh, becoming a standard across the U.S. for states that legalize recreational cannabis. Mm -hmm. um, so if passed, this will be pretty groundbreaking. Um, Who's responsible for the creation of the proposal? Who's involved? A, a lot of people. Um, as I mentioned, uh, we've got small business owners. We've got the cannabis industry uh, participating. We've got cannabis equity advocates. We have members of the community who represent uh, the groups um, that, that would help steward some of these funds or help help us invest into, into small business opportunity, like um, the Oregon, um, ONAC was a, a part and uh, Urban League was a part. So we've had just a number of, um, a number of groups across Oregon who've uh, come together to really think about what, what our community wants to do to invest cannabis tax dollars. One of the great things and, about this is that the uh, cannabis industry has really come together around this bill. The Oregon Cannabis Association, the Oregon Retailers of Cannabis Association, um, many of the companies that uh, folks shop at um, are, are part of this effort and uh, have really gotten behind this in the legislature. So I think it's, uh, it's, it's really encouraging to see the entire industry get behind this as well. Mm -hmm. And kind of dovetailing off of this question, uh, who are the opponents to this bill and what are their main concerns? We haven't had any legislative hearings yet. Um, the bill is House Bill 3112. It got referred to the House Judiciary Committee just yesterday. We expect our first hearing will be in a week or a week and a half. Um, we've been meeting with many, many legislators and organizations that might be involved in it and um, while there have been questions about the bill in some areas, nobody has come out in direct opposition to it at this point. Mm -hmm. I want to return um, to expungement and people that have been convicted of cannabis-related crimes. Obviously, black Oregonians have been arrested over twice as much as white Oregonians for cannabis-related crimes, even though the consumption rates are about the same. Will this, help, will this bill help those who are currently incarcerated? So the bill does not de-incarcerate. Um, the bill is really focused on uh, where the majority of Oregonians who have had cannabis um, uh, convictions where where they are, which is which is not um, you know currently incarcerated, but but attempting to rebuild their lives and having the burden of this cannabis conviction. Uh, uh, make it difficult uh, and, and de depress. I mean, the data shows depresses their ability to um, earn an income and to make um, the wage that they, they 
should make. And there's just so much data that shows that that direct impact on the downward spiral. So we want to lift that for people so that they um, they can really move on and rebuild their lives now that they've repaid their debt society and and we've decided cannabis is we've we've realized the the benefit of this wonderful plant. Yeah, one thing to note is that Oregon was the first state in the country to decriminalize marijuana way back in 1974. So it's less of an issue of people being incarcerated, and it's more of an issue of their convictions stopping them from being able to rent apartments, get jobs, get education loans, all of the things that happen to people after convictions. And that's really the issue that we're really trying to get at with this bill. My name is Carly Quadros, and I'm speaking with Jeanette Ward-Horton and Jeff Sugarman about the Oregon Cannabis Equity Act. Um, so, so how can listeners get more involved with this? That's an excellent question. So we have um, a website. We invite you all to, to join or to, to come visit and learn more about the bill. So that's CannabisEquityOregon.com. And you can sign up there and sign up for updates. You can become part of our work group. So if this is something you're really passionate about, we'd love to have you join us as part of the work group. You can donate. So there's an opportunity to donate to the Cannabis Equity Pack and fuel this work. Um, a number of things you can do. Jeff, anything I'm leaving out? And I think that's it. Visiting CannabisEquityOregon.com is uh, the best way to get involved right now. Um, so my final question, will there be opportunity to build off of this legislation if it does pass in the future? That's an excellent question. Yes. So I'll start with, by saying that the legislation in terms of being effective really gives that governing body the ability to um, respond and evolve. In fact, they're accountable to. We're, we're looking for the cannabis industry to be more diverse. We're, we're setting aside these funds so that um, Black communities, Indigenous communities, Latinx communities see those improved outcomes. So that governing body has the flexibility to make adjustments and improve um, the way way that these funds are spent and the way that this is, um, even the expungements are working so that we're sure we're truly um, being effective here. So that's where the evolution will start um, uh, is with, with that governing body getting getting to work once, once this is passed. All right. How can listeners learn more about you two and the work that you do? Thanks for asking. They can learn more about New Leaf Project at newleafproject.org and we would love um, to have listeners uh, learn about what we do funding, uh, mentoring cannabis entrepreneurs of color. And uh, GW Industry, groundworksindustries.com, or you can uh, go to any of the electric lettuce, Sarah Farmer, or Proof Cult of our websites to find out um, what Groundworks is doing in the uh, arena of equity and inclusion. Thank you so much for your time, you two. Have a wonderful morning. Thank, thank you. you, Carly. Glad to be here. Thanks to Jeanette and Jeff for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow.